0: Welcome to the podcast, The Gateway Baptist Church. You're listening to a message from our Redlands campus. Find us at gatewaybaptist.com.au if you'd like to connect with us as we seek to change lives by following Jesus in our community, our nation, and our world. We're starting a new series this morning on the back of Easter. We're looking at the letters to the churches in the book of Revelation. Yes, we are preaching from Revelation. I'm nervous, you're nervous, we're all nervous. Let's get over it and keep going, all right? Uh, So there there is a life group series that goes along with it. There are uh, physical booklets that you can find out in the foyer afterwards. We have limited copies of these, so if you prefer to have a physical copy, um, grab one of those today if you're in a life group or a life group leader. Uh, Or uh, even if you want to do it on your own, maybe in your family, grab one of those. Or the alternative, if you're more tech-minded, is you can scan the QR code in front of you, go to the bottom of the links, click Life Group Resources, that'll take you straight to a PDF copy of that booklet. I'm, ex- I am ex- I'm not nervous, I am excited about this series. I think God's going to really encourage us and challenge us as he does in these letters. It, it, se- it seems to me in this day and age that a goal we encourage in life is to care less and less about what people think of me. That seems to be a shared thing. Like, don't, don't worry about what people think. Live your best life no matter what the people around me think about my choices. Here are some great quotes that help us to do this. This first one's from Coco Chanel, who I'd never really heard of, but she was a French fashion designer. I nearly left the other part of her life off there. She's a Nazi spy. Anyway, she said, I don't care what you think about me. I don't think about you at all. That seems like, doesn't that seem like a good motto to live by? I don't care. I'm just going to live my life. What about this next one? This next one is from Rachel Hollis, who's a motivational speaker. Someone else's opinion of you is none of your business. You're afraid to move forward because of what he might think or what she might say or what your in-laws think. That fear will keep you small. If you care too much about what people think, you'll live a small and insignificant life. What's the next one? Dr. Zeus, be who you are and say what you feel because those who mind don't matter and those who matter don't mind. Do I need to say that one again? Dr. Zeus. anyway, what's the next one? Here we go, this is great great life advice, right? Olin Miller, you probably wouldn't worry about what people think of you if you could know how seldom they do. I kind of like that one, but I think, I think it's this next one that's my favourite though. No, I've got one more, Lao Tzu, the ancient Chinese philosopher. Care about people's approval and you will always be their prisoner. That's, that's pretty good, I don't see anyone taking their phone out and taking photos though. This is my favourite, Ann Landers at age 20 we worry about what others think of us, at age 40 we don't care what they think of us, at age 60 we discover that they haven't been thinking of us at all. <laughs> that's, a, that's a quote to live by. I, I, do, I do like the sentiment in these quotes and I do think it's helpful to think about this and, and to think less about what people are thinking but I only think, I only think that's true to a degree. I think, I think the reality of living in community and in relationships is that A, we do care about what people think of us and that B, we should care what people think of us. I don't, rec- I don't reckon that's necessarily a bad thing. I think if you had a scale of over here not caring at all what people think right over to here of being a prisoner and being small and insignificant because you care too much about what people think Now, that's me quoting her, not necessarily agree. I think as people who follow Jesus, we should land somewhere in the middle. We should land somewhere in the middle. I reckon all of us could make a list, which probably shows to some degree that we do care how we are perceived by others. And I want to say that's not a bad thing. That's not a bad thing. Let's make this a little more collective. We, we are one here. We're, we're one church in many locations. We are one campus. We are a people here together who have said, this is the community, this is the family, this is the expression of God's church that I want to be committed to, that I want to find myself in, find my place in, Gateway Redlands. If you think about this question collectively, I wonder what do you hope people think about us? I think that's an important question. When the person down the street thinks about Gateway Redlands or when the, the, other, the other site holders in this complex think about Gateway Redlands, what do they think about it? What would they say about it? As they encounter you in your workplace or in your street or at your sporting club or in your school or wherever you are, when they encounter you and you say, I'm part of Gateway Baptist, what do they then, once you're gone, what do they say to each other about you? Let, let's drill down into more serious soil here for a minute. What do you hope, what do you expect that Jesus might say about us? I reckon if Jesus spoke to us today, we'd be both, at the same time, encouraged but challenged. There'd be some things that Jesus say, this is what I love about Gateway Redlands, but there'd be some other stuff that he'd say, in grace and love, here's some things that I'm not thrilled about. And that was the case for the seven churches that existed very early on in the growth and the expansion of the church. You know, as we sing that line, and the church of Christ was born. Not long after that, there were churches in seven cities around the the known world. And and Jesus, in a vision that John has of him, Jesus says to John, here's some things I want you to write down on a scroll and tell, deliver to the seven churches. And over the next five weeks, (laughs) we're only looking at five of the letters. We're looking at these particular letters because we believe that through these letters that the content, wasn't just for those original churches, but the content and what Jesus has to say is relevant to us today. It speaks to our church today and it speaks to our campus today. Can, can you imagine what that would have been like when that letter came? Like someone comes and says, you, you know John, John who knew Jesus, who walked with him, he's like this ancient guy now, probably around 90 and he's living in, living in exile on this island of, of Paphos, I think it was called. Something like that. Someone corrected me under their breath. And he's had this vision and he's trustworthy. He's had this vision. And here we are. Ma- imagine we're gathering in Ephesus. where the Ephesian church. We've already got a letter from Paul. But now we've got this vision from John who we can trust. And he's got something to say to us directly from Jesus. And that's what you hear. Encouraged and deeply challenged. So let's work through this letter and see what it holds for us today. The first thing, this revelation of who Jesus is. We're going to break this down and the passage is going to be on the screen. But if you've got a Bible in your hands or a phone, open to Revelation 2. And we're going to go, it's in verses 1 to 7. And I'm going to jump around a bit through Revelation and some other verses, but just keep it open on Revelation 2. So the revelation of Jesus is this. These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. The first thing that's so obvious about who this hymn is, is that it's Jesus. I think we all kind of knew that, right? This is who the hymn is of this verse. And if we we have any doubt, all we need to do is jump back to Revelation chapter 1. And this is John writing. He says, I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. This is the glory of Jesus. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow. And his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. That's Jesus because it's, he's glorious. And even though those terms that John used back then meant like hair like wool, we think old, you know, white hair. But John's just using words to describe what he saw. This is this is Jesus glorified. Every one of those phrases, he looked like this. He looked like this. I can't wish I could describe him to you, but I can't. This is Jesus. And this is for John, the, the appearance of Jesus had made him fall to the ground like he was dead. That's how glorious Jesus was in his vision. And so that's who this person is. This is the one who holds who holds the stars and, the lamp, and walks among the lampstands. is Jesus. So what are the stars and what are the lampstands? Well, again, if we go back to Revelation chapter one, we see the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. I love it when Jesus does this, by the way. You know, there's a few parables where he teaches them, but then he comes back later and explains them. I wish he did that all the time. He does it here as well. He goes, Okay, John, I know you're freaking out right now. I know you nearly carked it on the floor there, but let me just explain to you what's going on here. See these seven stars in my right hand? These are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands, we've tried to recreate them here, although there's more than seven. I know what's going on there. But anyway, these lampstands represent the seven churches. And what is going to follow are seven letters to these churches. Now, the angels of these churches, there's a bit of of debate about what's going on here. On the one hand, you've got the view that the angels of the churches are like a guardian angel in the spiritual realm appointed to to take guard over each church. So to follow that through, Gateway Baptist and then Gateway Redlands would have a guardian angel appointed by God in heaven to say you're to be the guardian angel over that church. A far more conservative view, though, on the other hand, is that the word angel actually means messengers, messengers. And so the angel of the church is the messenger, the one who speaks and leads the church. So this would be the pastor of the church as we would know it today. That's the one who Jesus is writing to. And, and, and Jesus is saying, I hold these people, or these angels, whichever way you want to go, in the palm of my hand. So what are the lampstands then? Well, again, it's really obvious that the church themselves, and I love the picture, the imagery of the lampstand, the light to the world, the city on a hill, the, the, the community designed to burn brightly in a dark world. A a lampstand is a beautiful representation of of Jesus' vision for his church. Whether you sit on this side that the the angels are actual angels, or you sit on this side that the angels are pastors, I I like that, I'm an angel, that's good. No, I'm just kidding. Whatever's going on, Jesus holds the authority over his church. He holds the angels in the palm of his hand, and he's the one who walks among the lampstands. He can snuff them out and light them as he pleases. The church should never forget that the senior of senior pastors is Jesus. Jesus is the one who leads his church. Jesus is the one who builds his church. Jesus is the one we submit to. You don't submit to anyone else except Jesus. Jesus is the one with all authority. When Reverend Edwin Keith rode his bike, again, I wish it was a horse, but it wasn't, it was a bike, down Logan Road and had a vision of a Sunday school in Holland Park, it wasn't because of his brilliant strategic thinking. It's because the one who holds all authority put a vision in his heart. Jesus was establishing a new lampstand in that moment. Four years and two days ago. And in the months of planning that led up to us being planted here at Victoria Point, That wasn't simply a clever idea motivated by a McDonald's-type approach to church that we'd have as many gateways as possible scattered throughout Brisbane, a franchise approach to get as many of us out there as possible. No, no, it wasn't that. It was Jesus establishing a new lampstand. It was Jesus deciding, I need this church in Victoria Point and from the places from which we all came this morning. Jesus is the one who holds all authority. Church, we can never forget. We belong to him. We are accountable to him. He is the senior, senior pastor of the church. And we bow in honor, we bow in trust, we bow in worship, and we bow in submission to him and him alone. So when he speaks, we should be listening. He goes on to say in Revelation 2.2, 2, I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them to be false. And then he picks it up again in 6, this commendation. You have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Jesus sees the hard work being done to establish the church and, and, and he sees that they have held firm doctrine, firm theology through attack and through invasion. Hear this. And here it is, Jesus meant to say it. He commends that. He commends the church at Ephesus for their firm grip on truth, for their hard work and for their perseverance against that which would derail them. He commends it. It's a good thing in his eyes. He, Jesus likes it when this platform right here that I'm speaking to you from is protected. That not just anyone can get up here and speak about whatever they like. There is a protection, there is a barrier around this thing that we have called teaching and preaching. Jesus commends that. You, you test the apostles, you test the prophets. And, and you, when you find them to be false, you don't have anything to do with them. They're not allowed into this position. Jesus says that's a good thing. That, that's, all, that's all pretty internal internal stuff, but, but Jesus also says this re- Also gives this reference to the Nicolaitans and says, you hate the work of these Nicolaitans. And I do too, and he, and he commended for that. Problem we have with the Nicolaitans is there's not a whole lot of clarity about what they promoted. Some believe that one of the things that the Nicolaitans were on about was the sharing of marriage partners. At this point, it's great the kids have gone out, although my, some of my kids are still here. The sharing of marriage partners. And at the time in a Roman culture, wives belonged to husbands. They were the property of the husbands and they were there for the enjoyment of men. And so the Nicolaitans were saying, so therefore we should share them. This is diabolical. This is horrendous. And this was going on and this was invading the church. The church became a place, some people believe, the church became a place where this wife sharing would happen. It's horrendous. And Jesus makes the point of saying, you hate that and I hate that too. Whatever the details were, what was going on? See, Ephesus was like the central place. There was a temple to Artemis, the sex goddess Artemis, right in the heart of the city. And so whatever the sexual sexual things that were going on in the city, the, the church at Ephesus was doing a really good job of keeping that out of the church and not allowing it to infiltrate, not allowing it to come in and take root in the church. And Jesus commends that, not allowing worldliness to seep in. So getting doctrine sorted, believing the right things, protecting what is taught at gatherings, what we sing, our practices, our lifestyle, making sure that's all right. Jesus commends it all. Yeah, I'm making a point of this because I think right now there is a danger for moving away from all of this and watering things down, accommodating the core beliefs, of the, the core tenets of the gospel in order to make it more palatable, to go a bit easy, to take it a bit lightly. But if we do that, we actually mess with the power that the gospel has to transform lives. And I love being part of this church that seeks to welcome everybody but also doesn't seek to water down or make the gospel more palatable and therefore give so much of it away. Jesus commends that. He goes on to say in verse three, you have persevered and endured hardships for my name. It's important, for my name and have not grown weary. This, this, is like, this is like another stamp of approval on, on the Ephesian Christians. This is actually the consequence of what Jesus commends. Because they did this, what has happened is they've attracted persecution. They've attracted uh, critique and, and criticism. But with that critique and criticism, they have endured. And they've, they've not grown weary and they've persevered. And Jesus says, I see that and I love that as the church embodies the lifestyle of Jesus, living as the people of his kingdom in this world, we should expect criticism. We should expect ridicule. But this church in Ephesus stood firm. So by, by all appearances, this church at Ephesus was a healthy church. If this church was around today, you might have heard about this church in all the headlines, and, and good headlines, not like some of the headlines we've been reading more recently. But headlines, and and maybe you'd even go, you know what, wherever this church is, let's say it's still in Europe or Asia, no Europe, I'm going there because there's a conference that the Ephesus Church are running and I'm going because they are the pin-up church of what it means to be the church of Jesus Christ. So I'm going and I'm taking a bunch of friends with me. This is the sort of church that is a great church that maybe you and I, depending on how we're wide, would love to be a part of. And yet, this church... The church at Ephesus, in the eyes of Jesus, was in danger of losing its heart. It was in danger of Jesus coming over to its lampstand and snuffing it out, taking it away. And what is that church without its light? In Revelation 2 verse 4, Jesus says, yet I hold this against you. Even that sentence makes me shiver. You have forsaken the love you had at first. This church at Ephesus was a loveless church. The love had gone. In their pursuit of getting all of this stuff right, they had not just forgotten, but a far more damning word, forsaken the love they had at first. They had so much going on for them. They were working hard for Jesus. They were theologically sound, not giving up when things got tough. A strong faith, strong perseverance. Yet what they lacked was endangering their very existence. Everything appeared so good and yet they were in danger of falling off the edge of the cliff because they had forsaken their first love. Forsaken carries far more intent in my mind than just forgetting. It's almost like it's an intentional thing. Oh, don't worry about that lovey-dovey stuff. We just gotta get truth right. We just gotta do the right stuff. Don't don't worry about love and all that silliness. All that warm stuff. We just wanna make sure it's truth and we're preaching the right stuff and deep theological teaching and all that sort of thing. We're gonna work hard at that, and we're not gonna we're not gonna give anything away when people challenge us. They're all damned to hell anyway. There's no love. And this happened in Ephesus despite the warning that Paul gave to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 13 a passage that I reckon a lot of us are familiar with if I speak in the tongues of men or of angels but do not have love I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal if I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge and if I have a faith that can move mountains faith that can move mountains isn't that a faith we want Jesus said if you have faith you can tell that mountain get up and move I can have that, but if I don't have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship, that I may boast working hard for Jesus, but do not have love, I gain nothing. I wonder how we might replace the things that Paul highlights here in our day. If I have the best buildings kitted out with the best gear and set design. If I have the best worship and preaching, how good was it to have the drums this morning? If I have the best graphics and logos and the best general vibe, but if I have not love, I am an annoying noise. I am nothing. I gain nothing. Now hear me clearly. None of those things are bad. None of those things are bad. I love love. The worship that we have together on Sunday. I love how tight the band is. I love Maddie on the drums this morning. It was great, great to have that beat in. I love this facility. I love this building. I love being able to gather here. I love that we're in a complex like we are. I love Victoria Poor. I love, 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 love. But if I don't love God and I don't love others, all of that is nothing. I gain nothing. And it's the same for us. When we love them more than the love we had at first, well, Paul again says in Galatians 5 and 9, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love, not faith expressing it through all those other things, but faith expressing itself through love, not, not, not faith expressing itself through sound teaching. Not faith expressing itself through good theology. Not faith expressing itself through perseverance. Not faith expressing itself through working hard for Jesus. But faith expressing itself through love. Love. Revelation 2.5, Jesus goes on to say, Consider how far you have fallen. Man, consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. There it is. Without love, we cease to be a church that belongs to Jesus. That's the danger we face. Hear that warning. That's the first thing to see. Removal of lampstand means no longer being a church that shines. No longer being a church that belongs to Jesus. Who wants that? Do you want to be that church? I don't. Okay, so what then, what then are we, what are we repenting from and where where do we need to get back to? If repentance is this change in direction, what are we walking back towards? What is this first love? What are the things that we did at first? I don't think this is complicated. It's not complicated, but what it is, is the essence of all that Jesus did and taught You remember the moment, and I reckon you know this even if you haven't been around church very long, where Jesus was asked the question, what is the greatest commandment? That is a singular question. What is the one greatest commandment? Jesus said, I can't give you one, but I'll give you two, a two-for-one deal. Here is the first one, love God with all your mind, strength, soul, all of those things. The second is just like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Loving God, loving others. Simple, but that's our first love. It's interesting that John's the one who has this vision because if you read his letters, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, he's known as the pastor of love. That sounds pretty good, I reckon. The pastor of love or the apostle of love. And he's constantly saying to his churches, love each other, love each other. God loves you. Love God, love each other. Love each other, love each other. And this is the one who's writing the message now for the church at Ephesus. Return to your first love. Love God, love each other. What is so striking is if you do a bit of research, you see that love for God and love for each other was one of the early markers of the Ephesian church. So when, when, when Jesus says, do what you did at first, they know what he's talking about. Paul, when he's writing to the church at Ephesus in that letter called Ephesians in the first chapter, he says, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. This is what that church was like in the beginning. Your faith in the Lord Jesus that you had, the love you had for him, and then that, the manifest of that being your love for each other was remarkable. And now, years later, you've moved from there. You've become too heavy on this truth thing, and you've lost your grace. Let me ask some practical questions, though, for us today. Here's the question for us. How do we know if we are in danger of losing our first love or forsaking our first love? I just want to put some questions to you for, to allow you to think about, okay, where am I at right now? Have I forsaken my first love? Have I moved so far into other areas that the love that I have for God and the love for others is gone? Well, let me ask you these questions. Let's, talk, let's think first about love for God. Think about Your love of God's presence. Are you aware of and sensitive to His presence? And I'm not just talking about here on Sunday, I'm talking about daily moments. Is there an awareness and a sensitivity to His Spirit? He's perpetually present. Are we aware of it? What about Scripture? Is my passion being regularly stoked by His Word? I struggle with this. When I open the Word of God, sometimes I just want to tick a box. On my reading plan, just click. Yep, done it, and move on. And I know that when I when I when I get in that mode, my heart is becoming dry. There's times where we we just I'm going to keep reading this God until you stoke my passion for you once again. Thing is, you got to start reading before that'll happen. What about just a, a constant gratitude and thankfulness for the mercy of God? Am I moved by His mercy? Am I moved by his mercy? When I think about myself and I think about the onion layers of sin that just keep getting deeper and deeper and deeper, and I find that that's been my spiritual journey, how deep my sin runs. But as it's more and more exposed, just that gratitude for his mercy, that even despite that, he forgives me. He loves me. His grace is enough, and I'm moved by his mercy comes to loving God am I am I aware of and sensitive to his presence is my passion being regularly stoked by his word and am I moved by his mercy there are tons of other questions but how's your love for God what about loving others here's some questions here's some questions these were hard to write actually am I quick to anger towards those around me Do I avoid people based on disagreements and write them off because of what they believe? Think less of them, have nothing to do with them. Do I become easily frustrated when my time is hijacked by the needs of others, even those close to me? To spin a question a bit more positively, am I looking for opportunities to generously serve the needs of others? Not just reacting to opportunities, but looking for opportunities. Again, there are tons of other questions you could ask, but how is your love quotient for other people? This is the first love that I'm convinced Jesus is talking about, getting back to loving God and loving others, starting with those in the church, but absolutely moving out to the people in our community. Jesus finishes his letter This short letter to the church at Ephesus, like this, to the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. Gateway Redlands, we need to care what Jesus thinks about us. We need to care about what Jesus would say to us and about us. And what Jesus thinks about us is actually connected to what the world would say about us because what he said was, the way you love each other will show the world that you belong to me. The way that you love, the way that you serve one another will show the world that you belong to me. So he cares about what other people think of us. And we should too. We should too. Jesus talks about your unity and your love. May they be one, Father, as you and I are one. Then the world will know that you sent me. Unity and love, unity and love, unity and love speaks to the watching world. And we need to care about what they think. We need to care about what they would say about us. It's brilliant. I've got to say, I, I, it, it, I do pinch myself every day that I get to do this. I really do. I absolutely love it. I love being a part of the Gateway family. I love being part of Gateway Redlands. And the things that we have in our resources are incredible. And I love them. But my love for them cannot be greater than the love I have for you and the love I have for people out there. And it's the same with you. And when we care about what Jesus thinks of us, it leads us to become more like him. He leads the victory here, he speaks about the, the, to the victorious one. He can say that because he has victory. And the victory he has gives him the right to distribute fruit from the tree of life that is in the paradise of God. That's the fruit that we want to eat. This is the glorious one. This is the glorious one who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And if you think about that, full of grace and truth, Jesus didn't have a half measure of truth and then a half measure of grace. Jesus came full of both, 100% grace, 100% truth. What had happened at Ephesus, the church at Ephesus, had had become far more concerned with truth and forgotten about grace. And that's what can tend to happen. You can become far more concerned about truth and you become a loveless church. You can become far more concerned with love and say truth doesn't matter. And I think that's equally disastrous. But the problem for the church at Ephesus, and I would argue that a problem with part of our tradition as Baptists is we tend towards this side. We tend towards truth often at the expense of grace. Let's not be that church. Let's not be that church. I wonder how people would have described Jesus. I wonder if he cared to think about what people thought, and I think he did to some degree. There are times when he didn't, depending on who it was. But I wonder how the woman at the well would have described Jesus. I wonder what she would have said about him after their encounter was over. We know, what he, we know what she said. She goes to her friends in the village and says, come and meet the man that told me everything about myself. That was a woman that had encountered truth. You've had seven husbands, five husbands. The one you're living with isn't your husband now. Truth. But my goodness, she felt love from Jesus, grace. What about the woman caught in adultery? The woman who's there, who's been beaten and, and used by the Pharisees as a tool to try and catch Jesus out. He says, I don't condemn you. Go and leave your life of sin. Grace, truth, the fullness of both. What about the disabled man lowered in through the roof by his mates whose sins were forgiven before he was physically healed? truth. You need, the the bigger problem you have than the fact that you can't walk is that you have sin that separates you from God. That's the truth. His grace, be healed. Be healed, be forgiven, be restored. People who encountered Jesus would have said he was full of grace and truth. Those who witnessed John when he writes it, those words, he came from the Father. He came full of glory because he was full of grace and truth and Gateway Redlands. We need to be like Jesus. Not a half measure of both it becomes fullness, but a fullness of both. And we do this. This starts with, first, loving Jesus. Before we love others, we love Him. And what happens then is naturally, logically, consequently, from our love for Jesus, what flows from that is a love for others. To put this really truthfully though, and I kind of gave this away, when we came out of worship before. I would hate for you to go out of this room today feeling guilty about your lack of love. I would hate for you to go out of the room today with a, with a, with a desire to sort of stir up within yourself a love for God. Come on, I, I've got I've to raise my hands in worship. I've got to put some more worship music. I've got to stir this love thing. I've got to look, look around. Who can I love today? Like that's not a bad motivation, but it's not a gospel motivation. Because the key to this And it's in the Word of God. This is love. This is love. Not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. This is love. So it's not about stirring ourselves up to love God more, but just to sit and soak in the love that God has for us. To dwell in it. To welcome it to ask the Holy Spirit to fill us with it. God loves you. You don't need to worry. There's there's no, there's no doubt about God's love for you. If you sit hearing my voice today and you think God could never love me, you are wrong. You are wrong. God has said it. I love you. Look, look at me on the cross dying for you. Look at me declaring through the story of humanity, I love you. Nothing is holding my love back. It's a lie of the devil if you think that you are unlovable by God. He loves you. He loves you. He loves you. There is no doubt. He has said it. And you know when someone says, when you're in a relationship and the, the person says to you, I love you, that you can relax because you go, oh, I love you too. That's where our love for God comes from. Not that we love Him, but that He loved us and gave His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. So we can say without risk or fear, We love you. I love you too. I love you too. Close our eyes and bow our heads for a minute. The last thing I want is for this moment to be forced. I don't want to manipulate this moment, but what I do want to create is a space and a moment where the Holy Spirit might come because the Holy Spirit delights in doing this. It is the Holy Spirit's delight to fill your heart with the love of God. It is the Holy Spirit's delight to glorify Jesus. And so, come, Holy Spirit. Just as you hovered over creation, waiting for the moment to come and begin creation. I just have a picture and this is the beginning of the service that you're just hovering. And you're waiting for that heart to say, come. Oh God, I feel like I'm forsaking my first love. I feel like I'm forgetting my first love. And I need you to come. I need you to come and stir in me and awaken me and fill me again with your love. And if that's your prayer, just hold your hands out. Just just really simply in front of you, your your hands with your palms up, just in a sign of surrender. Oh God, I'm, I feel like I'm on that path of forsaking my first love and I need You, Holy Spirit to come and fill me again. We hope you've been blessed by this message. If we can pray for you or you would like to take a further step in your relationship with Jesus, we would love to connect with you. Please head to gatewaybaptist.com.au and click on Get Connected to let us know.